Welcome to Filmstrip and our reviews of the Alien movie franchise. There is an explanation for this. Featuring Nick. Check it out. I am the ultimate badass. And Jay. This is so nuts. Listen to what you're saying. Please note, these episodes will contain spoilers and in-depth discussion of the plots and characters of the films. All content used or discussed in this podcast are the property of their respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I'm Nick. And this is our review of Alien 3, The Assembly Cut, starring Sigourney Weaver, Charles S. Dutton, Charles Dance, and Lance Hendrickson, directed by David Fincher, edited by Terry Rawlings and David Crowther. Now, we said last time why we were doing this, but... We didn't really get into a lot of the pre-production stuff on Alien 3, the story of how it got here, and we wanted to save that for this discussion. And this will be a little bit different. We've never done a podcast where we basically had two cuts of the same film and are reviewing both of them. So this will be a little different for us here on Filmstrip. But, Nick, let's talk about you know, one, why we wanted to do it into two pieces again, and then let's get into the story of the Alien 3 assembly cut. I kind of want to touch on it a little bit because Alien 3 is such an interesting pre-production as far as the different scripts that were written. There was different directors attached to this before Fincher. And we talk about like other movies, they have had that deleted scenes in them. And, but this one has over a half hour of just stuff completely cut from it. And when you add it in, it's almost like a completely different movie or at least a different theme. Well, it adds different elements to it. Yeah. What I, I would say, here's the thing. You know, I, I said last time I had never seen the assembly cut until this watching for the, the podcast here. And I got to say the, the biggest thing, if I had to sum it up is if you were curious about the motivations of these prisoners and what their story was and things like that, then the assembly cut is for you because all of that, makes so much more sense to me now and they I actually have characters to root for and know about there where before they were you know the African American man and the the other one and then a bunch of British bald guys you know it was they were sort of <laughs> random and now in this one they have much more story they definitely made a lot of changes in cutting this apart but before we even get there Nick it you know, I said last time it took them a long time and a lot of people to get to what ultimately hit the screen. So how did they even get here after Aliens? I don't even really know how they didn't get there a lot sooner. I mean, when you think about when Aliens was released and when Alien 3 was released, I mean, that was a long time. You know, usually f- sequels are, what, three years, four years at the most? Generally, and- yeah. I mean, when think about the distance between the first Alien and Aliens. It did take them seven years or so to get between those, but that was because they made a conscious decision to wait on Cameron to finish Terminator before they, they did it. You know, so that that's different. That, but also when you think about the 80s, I mean, 80s was a decade of sequels. I mean, oh, yeah. you got well, all the Friday the 13th. Well, yeah, there, there was out. a new Nightmare movie every year for five or six years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and okay. that's what I kind of get by that. Is, what I kind of mean by that is they had such a hit on their hands. You'd think they'd want to, like, you know, capitalize on that right away, but it took them a while. And I think part of the problem was, at least from what I've been hearing and reading and everything, was Fox wanted a sequel right away, but they just had really deep pockets and short arms. You know, they didn't know what they wanted. <laughs> they, they, they didn't know what they wanted, but they knew what they didn't want. And that was to spend a lot of money. There was a lot of talk about the alien finally coming to Earth. I mean, that was always the big theme of the movies was this thing better not get to Earth. This thing better not get to Earth. You know, what would happen to Hadley's Hope will happen to Earth and stuff. And that was always kind of the fear that everybody had, at least the character wise in the movie. But 
Fox didn't want to go there because, you know, it's going to cost a lot of money to do something yeah. on Earth compared to, you know, doing it in a facility where you can just make hallways and the sets and stuff. But they, 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 they didn't want to do that. But then another idea was possibly doing the Alien Homeworld, which that's going to cost a lot of money, too, because Alien Homeworld, you're probably going to have thousands of aliens or, you know, what have you. And they didn't want to spend money like that. So basically they wanted anything but that. And that was kind of where the problem arose. Um, the first guy, I think, to do a script was by the name of William Gibson, who he wrote the script and he basically envisioned being Aliens Part 2. He actually wrote Ripley out of the script by having this group of people find the Sulaco and conveniently enough, Ripley was in a coma. So it was just basically kind of, like I said, aliens too. There's a lot of uh, back and forth action between the Marines and the aliens. And I think the script had about eight actual different battles that happened between the Marines and the aliens. And at the end of the movie, it was going to be a setup for alien four, which is going to take our heroes back to the alien homeworld. Can I tell you why that would have not worked? And it's not because they write Ripley out. I'm I'm actually going to – I didn't say much about this last time. I'm going to definitely bring it up this time about Ripley's role here and all of that. I, I want to tell you why that would not work. And I think Geiler and has said in a lot of his uh, – David Geiler has said in a lot of the, the supplemental materials is that you know they got a lot of script ideas that were like a sequel to Aliens. And they didn't really want to do that because they felt like anytime they try to match up to what that film had been, they were always going to fall short. And I think – they would have that have been like trying to do a, a sequel to saving private ryan or something i mean you there's just some things you can't follow the battle sequence of it just doesn't work right um think think about for instance and we'll we, we always pick on george lucas on these podcasts right think about the battle scenes in space of, of even something like return of the jedi not the favorite of most people in the thing but the battle scene there at the end is pretty epic right compared to the one that's in phantom menace well, the one in Phantom Menace looks better, but it's there's nothing to it. Nobody cares, right? It's a bunch of droids who, you know, there's no weight. There's no way you can add that same weight back in because the whole point of Aliens was that we take all this superior firepower and it still gets laid waste. Well, you can't recreate that. That The rabbit's already out of that box. So that would have been a huge mistake to try to turn this into a war franchise. I, that seems bad, and I want to tell you what I think may have influenced that. In between Aliens and... Uh, Alien 3, what came out, Nick? Predator. And what was Predator? Uh, an extraterrestrial that was an attack mode, right? And was always hunting, and it had the big fight with Arnold and all that stuff. I have a feeling some of that was influencing that idea for that script. I can't prove it, but I just think that. Oh, it's very possible. And, you know, even came out after that was Predator 2, which came out before Alien 3. And, you know, that, we could even we could even bring up that, you know, that movie wasn't successful. I mean, that was a critical bomb. That was uh, a commercial bomb. No one really uh, liked that movie. I don't like that movie at all. And, the movie's horrible. Yeah, there's a yeah. reason why. It's bad. <laughs> and that, that could also have influenced him, too, is, you know, copying the same thing doesn't necessarily always work. And I think the redo kind of what Cameron did, I mean, audiences aren't stupid. And they're going to realize what's going to happen. I mean – the reason Aliens was so great was you took what the audience was expecting, and that was something being like Alien, and then turning into something like Aliens, you know, turning a horror into an action combat. They didn't know what to expect as that was happening. Now to do an action combat and then go to another action combat movie, you're going to kind of, it's going to follow the same rules. You know, you're going to get a group of guys, you know, they're all going to have different personalities and stuff, and then they're going to slowly get picked off one by one in big battles. It's going to be the same old stuff. And yeah, I mean, you might be able to do it at a grander scale, but it's going to 
it's going to get basically like I brought up those eighties horror movies. They all felt the same and this is just going to feel more of the same. So I think they were right to kind of maybe go back and like, you know, let's try something just a little bit different. I think what they wanted to do is to get back to what Ridley Scott had done was do something that was more of a, a thriller horror kind of film and to do something that maybe the pace was a little slower. The cast was a little smaller. I mean, I could I could see wanting to go back and revisit that. And that actually makes some sense. The trick to, to formula is it, it can work for you, you know, if you do it right. I mean, you, say what you will about some of the Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street sequels. Those are popular because people like the formula and it works. I always feel like Alien was supposed to be, as a series, was a, a higher brow than some of that stuff. And it, I find it interesting that they say all this stuff about how they wanted to do something different, do something different, but yet they really tried to recreate the mood and atmosphere of Ridley Scott's Alien, and they tried to hit all the beats that Cameron had. I think I brought up last time when we were talking about Alien 3 that I felt like we were in Ridley's world, but moving at Cameron's pace with Fincher's sort of cynical sensibility. Because there's so many times in the film where I'm like, okay, now's the time where we got to hit the beat where somebody dies and you don't expect it. And now here's where the robot comes in. And then here's where the thing happens. And, I mean, that happened. And they still do that. It's not as evident in the assembly cut because of everything they add back in and the scenes are much longer and stuff and we get into that. But they still fall into the formula. But I find it funny that they didn't want to repeat the combat movie which I agree was a bad idea, but they want to try to get back to the horror movie, but they can't get anybody that knows anything about horror movies to write the dang thing. William Gibson, I'm not really familiar with his work, but just after reading his script, I mean, that's, I can see why they didn't want to do it. I mean, besides being just Aliens Part 2, it was it was more of the same, and I, yeah, I agree. I mean, almost, let's make the franchise go for a full circle, as they would say. You know, let's kind of bring it back to its roots. I mean, we even see kind of now with, like, the new Batman movie that's coming out, how they're kind of bringing up the old, uh, you know, Ra's al Ghul type feeling, at least from everything I'm reading from behind the scenes, kind of bringing that franchise full circle. So I could kind of see them wanting to do almost the ty- same type of thing here. But even before we got to that, then, uh, a, guy, a guy by the name of Eric Red wrote the next script for Fox, and... If anybody's ever saw the movie Akira, it is basically a ripoff of that. We're we open up the you know the story with uh, this group of people finding the Sulaco, and Ripley, Newt, and Hicks have all basically turned into cocoons themselves, or cocooned eggs, or however you want to say it. And uh, face huggers break out and go on these guys, and it just gets really bizarre. I, <laughs> I choose to kind of try to forget most of the script. All I remember really is that it ends with the ship that they're on, this family that this family that's on the ship turning into an alien itself. I mean, you actually have a full ship like the size of the Sulaco turning into an alien. It's just off the wall ridiculous. <laughs> How in the world that guy, whoever got paid for that? I hope they didn't give out a lot of dough for that. But, oh my! God. I hope not. But actually, before that yep. though, is um. Fox actually hired Rennie Harlan. Yeah, as a director, to, I knew that. to direct that, and he read the script and walked out on the project, and he wanted to do Die Hard too. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you something. People bang on Rennie Harlan. I'm going to tell you he was wise to know that that was a bad idea. That he had just done Nightmare on Elm Street. That had gotten him in the Nightmare. I think he did Nightmare Four. That got him in the door with American audiences. And I mean, he was a big deal. As bad as the Die Hard Two script is, and it's got its problems. It's that's light years above a ship turning into an alien that would have been ridiculous 
Yeah, I mean, if my memory serves me correct, I mean, there's even like alien-human hybrids, which we're probably going to talk about next week. And then there's even uh, alien mosquitoes, alien cattle, alien dogs, oh. alien chickens. It's well, we we almost ridiculous. get alien cattle here. I mean that we that that held around oddly enough. So. But these ones, though, I mean, it's not as far as just you know turning from you know walking on two legs to walking on four legs. I mean, they actually took on their you know their actual physical characteristics. I mean, if you ever oh. were, if you if you were like me growing up, you probably might have had like the alien toys line, the alien toy line that came out in the early '90s. How like you had like the bull alien, the, the mantis alien, and how they actually looked more like the animal than the than the uh, H.R. Geiger um, alien, and that was kind of what he was getting at with that. Is is it was just ridiculous. But uh, then what came next was actually uh, David Twoey, um, who you might know from the uh, Riddick movies. He also did um, he did a movie with Charlie Sheen. The um, it was called The Arrival. I actually I actually like The Arrival. I'm one of the few people that I know likes. That. I think that's a smart little sci-fi film. We may have to do that one someday. But yeah, I like him. So. Yeah, I I, the, I like David Toy a lot too. I love Pitch Black. I think that's a great alien type, you know, movie with the nice little switch at the end and everything. Less we talk about the Chronicles Riddick, the better. But the first Pitch Black was really good. But his um his script brought in the prison planet type setting, and it was a decent script and stuff. But it also kind of got a little bit off the walls with uh, alien clones, and there was like a Siamese twin alien that were they were actually like, connected together. <laughs> oh, and, God. Was, yeah, was Ripley in that one, or did, when did she come back in in the scripts? I want to know. She was in this. Was she in the script? God, there's so there's so many Alien Three scripts, but yeah. I don't think she was in the script. Okay, I think that was the big thing is that all these scripts that they had, the Twoey script, the Red script, the Gibson script, none of them had Ripley in it. The only one that really did have Ripley in it was Gibson's, and she was in a coma. That way they could write her out of the story because. She was on the big thing about no guns and everything, and we brought up how she wanted to have sex with an alien. She wanted to die, and she didn't want guns. And Fox was just kind of weird about bringing her, bringing her back, and she didn't really want to come back either. You know, I think she thought the story was done as far as you know Ripley's story. She came back twice more, so clearly that check convinced her otherwise. Well, isn't that what it's all about in the end? It's all about the money and the producer's credit, because you've actually noticed yeah. on Alien Three, she does have a producer's credit. Yeah, she's co-producer in this thing. Yeah, so yep. I, I noticed that. So I, yeah, they definitely had to pay Sigourney to get her back in. But then that though that brings us to Vincent Ward, right? Yep, and he was actually hired as the director. And he told them, because Fox actually, they didn't mind Twoey's script. They actually kind of wanted to tweak it and take it from there. But Vincent Ward said no. He said he wanted to write a new script. That was He was not going to direct Twoey's script. And that's when he wrote the Wooden Planet script, which I just recently read. And it's an interesting script, to say the least. And not, it's not bad. It's how it starts off. It starts off almost exactly like Alien 3 with their escape pods exiting out of the Sulaco through the EVV and crash instead of, but instead of crashing onto a prison planet, they crash onto a wooden planet that's run by monks. And after, yeah, I, you gotta go, you gotta go with, you gotta go with it. It is, it is a ridiculous concept. I mean, this, this wooden planet actually has an atmosphere. The opening scene is actually a guy reaching his hand into outer space through the atmosphere to bring it back and showing, Oh, he's just on the edge of the spaceship. I mean, it's, it's hold on, hold on, hold on. Um, egg don't open. Um, I, mean, I can't even imagine that. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it's uh, 
Yeah, and uh, well, what happens though is Ripley's spaceship crash lands into their I don't know little lake they have. Think of it like bio, like it's a biodome. It's like a biodome. <laughs> now, now I have Polly Shore in my head. <laughs> no, not that. If, if, if it would have had Polly Shore in it, though, that might have been pretty interesting. <laughs> that would have been that would have been a really interesting. Well, I don't, I'm surprised he's not in one of the Alien versus Predator films. So that's a couple weeks away. But, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, well, I'm getting you biodome. I got you. Yep. So what happens is it crash lands into this lake, and it turns out Newt had the alien inside of her, and the alien actually escapes through her. Or no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll take that back. The alien was actually inside Hicks, and the alien escapes. And then it turns out the whole big plot twist at the end was there was an alien also inside of Newt, but when it went underneath the water, it actually went out of Newt's mouth and into Ripley's mouth and re kind of... I don't know how you call it, you know, resettled itself in her lungs because it needed to grow some more and stuff. And there's some cool scenes in here. I mean, there's stuff with the, I mean, it's a, it's supposed to be like a monastery, real old style living, almost kind of like the village in a way, how they were kind of living in the past. This is what these monks wanted to do. They wanted to live in the past. And there's a scene where they're sitting, this guy's sitting on like a John type thing. And the alien is actually living a crap. And this guy's, you know, doing his business, and the alien actually reaches up and grabs him and pulls him down into it. And, and I see that. I mean, that would actually be kind of maybe a kind of a cool scene to see on screen and stuff. But it's, the script starts getting a little bit more off the walls, if you can believe it, uh, with the alien taking on like a chameleon type chameleon type behavior where it can make itself look like wood and it can make it because the whole plot is that the aliens and the other aliens movies kind of looked more mechanical in nature because they were on a metal air they were in metal areas they were in metal corridors so they took on those shapes and because this one's in wood areas it starts taking on wood characteristics and uh, i think that would enter in the uh, thing that killed the rest of these money and then we're going to spend the money on that at all but there's there's it goes on the script with the um the prisoners or not the prisoners the monks wanting to kill the alien and they set fire to the this big cornfield where they grow all their corn and wheat because the alien's living in there and they try to kill it that way they end up killing all themselves by doing it I mean very much like Alien Three with how they're trying to burn it out that that sounds like Children of the Core <laughs> so yeah. he, he who walks behind the rose is also an alien but you can but you can see how when it was later rewritten the script was actually the basis for Alien Three you can kind of see little elements that they obviously wrote around and kind of changed it to a prison setting like the fire trying to try trying to Get the alien out. I mean, that's just the same thing in Alien Three. When yeah, they are. Vincent Ward still gets story credit. That's right. So yeah. And then Ripley being pregnant with the aliens is the, the huge thing in it. And later in this movie, um, or in the script, you would call it a movie, the script. Um, Ripley's like in the center of this planet, and and she's down there with another guy who's kind of like the uh, Charles Dance character, you know, kind of like the doctor type guy, and. The alien's trying to get at him, and the alien is almost taking on, like, human characteristics now, where it's actually, like, taunting Ripley, like, through doors. And, like, one of the one of the uh, monks on there actually turns out to be a synthetic. I mean, they got to always have that in the movie where someone's a robot that, that they don't really realize at first. And the alien's, like, picking up its head and trying to make it look like it's talking, like it's all this taunting of Ripley. And they end up killing the alien in the same way, but instead of it being uh, getting it full of lead and then putting water on it, there's like a glassworks thing in the um, this wooden planet that they cover it with glass, and then they sprinkle water on it, and it makes it explode. Two other big elements in the script. One is that the alien can somehow transfer to another body if you kiss the person. 
So at the end of the movie, when Ripley wants to sacrifice herself, the Charles Dance type character basically kisses her knowing that he's going to take the alien embryo into him and he ends up walking into the fire that the the monks set earlier, killing himself and Ripley gets in the escape pod, which now can take off out of the planet, mind you, and takes her chance trying to get picked up. And the other thing that's kind of was kind of interesting in the script was when Ripley is first interrogated, interrogated by the monks, by the head monk, she's talking about earth. And he basically says that, you know, earth is destroyed. Earth is gone, that they left earth 200 years ago and that Ripley and Newt and Hicks were floating in space for hundreds of years, kind of adding onto that, you know, 57 year element of aliens. Now they're saying she was out in space for 200 years, but in the end it's kind of, it goes into them, saying that, no, it hasn't been really 200 years, that this guy made that up, that Earth was being destroyed, and he made up that 200 years to Ripley so she wouldn't try to contact Earth. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that was... that, that, that's, it's, I mean, again, it's maybe M. Night Shyamalan copied that. I mean, I wouldn't put a pat <laughs> that, that. Well, can I say this? Though? Some of that is okay, and, because, and I know that because it comes into the movie that we get, because Vincent Ward's story is the outline of this, but some, yeah. like the end, all those ending elements, those would have been awful. That would have been horrible. And, yeah, the whole thing with the alien being able to, tr- and there was two endings to it. One of them was Ripley walking into the fire, and then the other one was the other prisoner walk. Or, Keep on saying prisoner, the other monk walking into fire, but whole thing with the alien being able to come out of the mouth and go into another mouth and stuff that was <laughs> kind of stupid. But especially with kissing and stuff, like he goes and kisses her, knowing that the alien's going to go into his throat. It's like that's kind of weird. Uh, yeah. yeah, but that was a script they actually decided to go with, and yeah, so, you know, yeah, and we heard that multiple times. Fincher shot the film not having a finished script. That may have been where they were going at one point. He had no idea. So. Yeah, you can actually you can see with the set designs too. I mean, a lot of that was, had a lot of Christian type elements to it with the way it looked, and especially in the assembly cut, which we'll get into in a minute, was. Yeah. You even see in the beginning of that, you see a cross out there. It's not really a cross, but it's like two like pieces of debris making a cross in the sun. And there's so much like Christian mythology and elements into it. It's- the, the whole point, and I think that's the thing. You know, I said earlier that the, the biggest thing that gets cut out of the assembly cut versus the theatrical is the fleshing out of the prisoners and who they were and stuff like that. And I'm going to go ahead and say this now. I'll play devil's advocate for just a minute, and I can see why the studio cut all of that. Even though it chops the movie up and it does feel like in the second act just we just transition and all of a sudden stuff happens, you know, and we don't know why, because that the movie, if the assembly cut, if you watch it as that, there's an equal balance of character time for Ripley and the prisoners, it, particularly Charles Dutton's character. You got a lot more of him. You understand him a lot better. He makes a lot more sense with all of his little pontificating and his speeches and all this stuff you actually want to start rooting for him a little bit. You get to know those prisoners more. And I think Fox looked at this and when they had Ripley on board or Ripley, when they had Sigourney Weaver back on board, they said, no, this is Sigourney's thing. We can't let anybody overshadow her. And she does a good job with what they've got. I I will still say Sigourney Weaver does a good job with what she's given, but I think that's why they made these decisions to cut it loose. And the whole point is this whole spiritual under theme is that when you are at the lowest point you can possibly get at, you find out what you're really made of and what really matters. And what I feel like Fincher is trying to say is that what really matters is being willing to sacrifice yourself and others to, for the greater good, if that's necessary. 
but and that's sort of the ultimate in spirituality and that's part of christianity and and a number of other religions you know so that's i think that's the whole theme and all that got gutted in the theatrical version so what comes out in the theatrical version is you have this woman who's at her wits end because she's infected with an alien you know the thing that she can't get away from right I and mean, that's how it plays but that that's the way it looks like to me and that's sort of what i get that's my overall feeling about the assembly cut is that it's much more a spiritual psychological film than the theatrical cut oh definitely i definitely agree there's even elements later in the movie with like the prisoners and how they see the alien or at least a few of the prisoners see the alien it's not a monster but some of them believe it's some type of religious symbol in itself and they think it's the end of times come to be you know that that's so cryptic particularly in christianity as to how that will work you, it's the beast. It's the yeah, it's the beast. Exactly. That could be. Yeah. Why not? You know. Why couldn't it be? It seems to operate like the beast that they've read about in Revelation and other things. So yeah, I could see how they would go there with that. And I can I tell you that was good. I liked that. All that stuff makes so much more sense. And Nick, I think the way we we can get through this one, we can't really do a plot summary again because it's the same movie. I mean, what we should do is just hit some of the bigger changes that were made and talk about them as they occur in the film and sort of what scenes they bookend and stuff. And that's how we'll we'll kind of go through this one. I will tell you, folks, if you haven't seen the assembly cut of Alien Three, you really need to watch it if you you have any plans of following the discussion much because again, having never seen it before, if I was trying to read all this, I, I wouldn't be able to picture it, but when you see it, it makes so much more sense. And um, I also want to point out too, that there is two different versions of the assembly cut, nothing really with what they added in content, but the new Blu-ray that came out the, for the alien, um, the alien set, they actually went back and redid the uh, ADR for the new scenes. Yeah. If you watch the uh, quadrilogy version, the DVD, you'll notice that when the new scenes come in, that the vo- that the, the audio is a little bit off because this is older stuff that they reinserted. So and it was never had proper audio, you know, mixing or. Yeah. So what they did was when they went and did the Blu-ray release, they actually had a lot of the actors come back in and re-record that stuff. So it sounds a lot crisper. It's, it, it makes the movie flow a lot better. It's, it doesn't take you out. I watched the Quadrilogy DVD watching the assembly cut, and they put subtitles in it, and you can follow it. It's not bad, but there's definitely a drop in quality. Like, what you hear is what was live audio on the set because they've got you know fans blowing and all this other stuff and you don't hear the crispness of the the vocal track recorded or re-recorded so i would have loved to uh, someday i'll have to uh, you know join the blu-ray Re- revolution nick and uh <laughs> get a copy of that and watch it but um but I, I i will say you can watch the dvd of it still and you can tell a difference you can still follow it oh yeah definitely it's it doesn't it doesn't take you out of the movie at all especially i mean if you're an alien fan and everything it's it's fine, but if you're going to pick, you know, if you got Blu-ray, definitely check it out. It's good. It's a really, it's really impressive that they went back and did that. It shows how much Fox actually, with all of Fox's shortcomings, how much they actually care for the series. They will protect their series on the long game. They sometimes will force stuff into theaters, but their DVD releases are almost always pretty robust, even for films that aren't very good. I mean, the Alien vs. Predator Requiem disc that I have, and we'll talk about that in a couple weeks, is... You I, own I mean, it? Oh, I actually own it. Yes, I I paid actual dollars for it. It um, it, there's a ton of stuff on it, you know, and I I've watched it all. So we'll we'll get back to that in another day. But I think we got to start with the opening here, Nick, because that's that's one of the biggest changes. The whole opening, not not so much what happens in the spacecraft. All that's still basically the same. 
but how the EV crashes and how the prisoners come upon the thing. I mean, we get this whole sweeping shot of the beach and the old refinery stuff, and you get Clemens walking in there. I mean, there's a lot of different stuff that happens in the way they discover the bodies. And Ripley is not a part of the EV. She's been thrown from it. Yeah, actually, the first thing we see, uh, first character we see is um, Charles Dance's character. And he's standing there almost like a monk. He's got like the uh, over, you know, the overcoat on, and he's got his hands just kind of settled on top of each other. And he's looking out there, and he sees the EEV out in the water. And then as he investigates further, he finds Ripley just covered in mud and everything on the shore. Yeah, and covered in those lice bugs and all that stuff. It's really gross seeing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a dummy. I don't believe that's Sigourney Weaver, actually. It's a pretty good-looking facsimile of her. But I like that. Can I tell you, I, I bought that a lot more than they just happened upon it. And all of a sudden, there are these people, and boom, we're back in the lab. Because it still all works out the same way. He carries her back in and yells at these prisoners to go get you know get the oxen out there. There could be more. And I, I like how all that plays out better because you don't know these people are prisoners. You know, we know that because we've seen it. But if you didn't know that, you'd think these are just like factory workers or something. Yep. I like how all that plays out. And then that's another change in things is the facehugger doesn't grab a hold of a dog it gets one of the oxen which it yep. later emerged from yeah because what actually this next scene that we get is them showing them how they got the eev out of the water which was actually with oxen and they're pulling the eev out and you see the oxen and everything like that and then they look inside the eev and you actually you see the wreckage in there you see that hicks has been destroyed you see you actually get a better view of him. You see his you know, body just yeah. mangled and everything, and um, they pull it inside. It's actually kind of a cool scene with them pulling it inside with the oxen. It's very cool. They pull it into basically where they, they leave it in that junk pile. And I like that the prison warden, Andrews, is typing messages to the company telling you everything that the scroll told you in the theatrical cut. You know, people dead, this happening. And he's got all this stuff going, and they automatically know a lot of information. Like one survivor, Lieutenant Ripley, here's her company number. Dead Corporal Hill dead 12 10 year old girl you know and i love how they throw all that in there and that gave andrew something to do i'm like yes that would be what he did he would he's the head guy in charge he needed to have that active role and i kind of liked that yeah and it makes sense later too when he and ripley are having an argument and it's showing that you know you know he's been in contact with them the whole time because you realize that you know what he is kind of a company man yeah totally i mean that that's why it makes so much more sense that that would work mm-hmm. And and I love how the the next scene in the theatrical is that, you know, he starts talking and says, this is rumor control. Here are the facts. But in this cut, it starts off with everybody walks in and he goes, Mr. Dillon and Charles S. Dutton leads a prayer and they all amen together. And then he starts the whole bit. And I like that because that builds camaraderie among everybody. They may be prisoners, but they all kind of have the run of the place together. Right. And I like the fact that even though he's a company man, he respects the fact that these guys have adopted this religion and they're going to go with it and whatever. And if it keeps them at bay, it keeps them at bay. Right. Mm-hmm. And I also like, too, that they're again, they're adding more of a religious uh, tone to the whole movie with Dylan giving a prayer for the people that died. Yeah. When he gives that speech at the burial later on, that bookends real well with the language he's using in the prayer. It makes a lot more sense. And I think Charles Dance even goes on to explain to Ripley, because he says it in the theatrical, but it doesn't make any sense there, when he describes the the sect of Christianity they've adopted. It makes a lot more sense. You listen to the way he prays and what he's saying and things like that. 
And it's, I, I don't know, that scene just works better. But I, again, if they're going to cut all the religious undertone, I get why it just goes straight to the warden there. You know, and you know who he is in the theatrical just by his actions. But this makes a lot more, it gives a lot more uh, robust feeling to the characters. And then another change that comes up after that is we get a little short scene. This is after Ripley has been awake, awoken, and she finds out about Newt and Hicks. But she actually has uh, some talk with Clemens about what the facility is, giving a little bit more light on it. And he talks about how it was a thousand convict facility at a time, and now it's been reduced to a 25-man custodial staff. And that they keep the place on pilot light is what he says. And she asks, what does pilot light mean? And he goes, toxic dump. The prisoners forge lead shields to seal off any potential leaks in the shaft. Uh-huh. So basically they're telling a guy, telling them what they do there. They use that lead foundry. It's in the original the theatrical cut, it sounds like they'd never used that thing before. But no, they use that thing. That's their job is to yeah. use that lead shaft, and they create stuff, shields, so the place doesn't let toxic stuff out into the planet. I mean, why they care about the planet, I don't know. But at least it makes a little bit more sense. This is one of those things that would have been better to reinsert, even if you're going to cut all the spiritual stuff out of the theatrical cut. Because then it doesn't seem like out of the blue that all these guys know how to work that foundry. You know, because it does come off in the theatrical cut. Like, how do they know how to do this? I guess they just know how to do it. But when you hear him saying, oh, no, they've done this and they built that. and it, You get how they would know their way around those tunnels and how they know how to shut it all off real quick and stuff. I mean, they work in the place. Yeah, definitely. And then after that, then, you know, it's it's the same movie up until we get up to the scene with the autopsy. They do add a little bit more into the autopsy. Oh, I don't know if you caught that or oh, not. But I they, did. God, that still gets to me. Oh, They actually, instead of just showing kind of like hints and little views of it, you still get all that, but you also get a, almost like a clear shot of her with a plastic wrap over her body with, uh, I don't know the medical term for it, but what goes into your sternum and it separates your rib cage. And oh, yeah, that was, <laughs> well, that was, that was right out of a saw movie or something, man. I mean, I've thought, yep. yeah, but you know, again, I, I get, uh, like I said before, I think Fincher's trying to throw us into an uncomfortable place. And it's one thing it's uncomfortable to have a prepubescent girl operated on basically topless. Okay. And it's another thing to go that dark and deep with they cut her open, they break her chest open, all that stuff. I mean, they show you the internal organs, all that. You know, just it's really unsettling. And again, I guy, it just creeps me out. But I think that's the point. It's supposed to, and it does. It does a really good job of that. Yeah, and edit scenes are brutal. And, oh, they are. They're, they're and, ugh. yeah. And from reports, that's not even it. I mean, they cut that down a lot. And if we would get the uh, true assembly cut with everything added back in, I think it would probably almost be unwatchable from everything I've heard. There's no way you could – everything I've heard about it, there's no way you could watch that thing. It's just – it's not going to happen. So. And they actually did show it to people uh, when they were doing test screenings oh. for the movie. They had that whole thing inserted, and that was the – it wasn't even that Newt was dead. The number one complaint that the people had walking out of it was the autopsy scene was too much. And Yeah, exactly. So the next thing is you get two of the prisoners. And one, we don't know anything about Frank. We, we didn't know him. But we know Murphy because he's the one that gets thrown in the fan blade in a little while. But to get these guys talking and they're bringing in a dead ox. You know, they're like, well, it just killed over all of a sudden. And they mm-hmm. talk about how it's... Uh, well, it's kind of in the prime of its life. This is sort of weird that it died, but oh well, you know. And they're stringing it up, and they say, "Yeah, we'll wash it off and skin it later." And you know, they use it for meat, obviously, right? 
And they're having this whole back and forth, and they talk about you know what they'd do if they ever got Ripley alone. And I I thought, well, if they're setting that up because I guess Frank is one of the guys that attempts the sexual assault on her later, then I guess that gives a little background to it. But I still think that whole scene is wrong and plays wrong and shouldn't even be in the film. But they have that. But I think the the most important thing here is we all know as the Alien fans, well, clearly this is weird, but this is something new. The aliens never ejected itself from a dead carcass before. It's always been a living host, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, like, is the ox really dead or is it just comatose or what? Because what is even neater is Murphy picks up this thing and says, hey, what's this? And it's this huge face hugger. And it's uh, it's bigger than most of the ones we've seen before. But we know what it is, but they don't. Yep. It's actually, they refer to it as, on set, as the queen face hugger. And... Apparently, how the uh, queen facehugger worked is it dislodged itself from the queen. The queen, knowing that you know her nest was destroyed or whatever, she had a queen facehugger always with her, and that was released on the ship. And it basically it can it can lay two eggs. It can lay one that's going to be the queen embryo, and then one for a warrior alien. Okay, so that I was going to ask then. So is is this isn't the one that impregnates the ox, but it is, is what you're saying. Yep, it's okay. the one that impregnates the ox. It impregnates uh, it would impregnate Ripley, or if you go back with the comic says the comic actually says that Ripley wasn't impregnated at first. It was actually Newt, and that when they crashed into the water, the alien escaped Newt's and went into Ripley's, which kind of brings us back to the whole thing I don't like about the Ward script with the yeah. alien being able to jump from body to body, and that just kind of I think it kind of defeats a lot of the purpose of being pregnant with the alien. I think it just seems kind of trivial that you are that the things just keeping warm inside of you instead of actually you know, living off you, which I think is much more disgusting. You know? Well, it's much more horrific if that's the case, you know. And plus it gives – I think that gives it away too early. I mean, I know once you see the movie, the cat's out of the bag that Ripley's got an alien in her, but that's half the suspense is you don't know she's infected. You think nude is, and maybe, you know, now you see the other alien run around, you think, well, okay, no, it wasn't Ripley, but because she doesn't have any of the scarring and she's just beat up from a crash, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, that that leaves this that almost kills too much of the suspense. I'm glad they cut a lot of the explanation of that though too, because there's no way any of these guys would have known that about the facehugger. You know, well they did they, they didn't say it in the movie. This is all just stuff that I picked up from the uh, the production the production diaries the behind the scenes. stuff. Yeah, there's no way to explain it. That's what I'm saying. Like there's nobody that can come in and go, oh that was the queen facehugger because they don't even know what facehuggers are anyway. Yeah, so, it's, yeah. They, they they put all this thought into it, and they I think that's what they realized was, well, it it makes sense a little bit from you know the standpoint we're going at with it, but there's really no way to give exposition for it, and right. that's why they dropped it. And is it two facehuggers, three facehuggers, one facehugger, eggs on the ship? That's yeah. what they threw in. Which I don't know if whatever one you like better is up to you, but. I like I like the idea of the queen facehugger, but it's again, you know, how do you explain it? I mean, I guess you probably could have had Bishop doing a little bit of exposition about it, but how would he even know? Exactly. Know? Yeah, he wouldn't have known that either at that point. I'm surprised this has never come up in one of the later films, though. We'll I guess we can talk about that if we, when we get around to those, but I I'm surprised they never went back to that idea. The burster scene is basically the same except for the long shot. They finally show the the gutted out ox thing, and then you have the rod puppeted effect of the the dog alien, if you will, and running down the hall. And I did get to see the, uh, you know, tippet greyhound dog that they put up in the alien gear run. Oh, wasn't that terrible? I thought that, I said, they should have filmed that. That's precious. So I guess that is, I 
surprised you don't have your dog like done up like that at Halloween or something. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was that was an awful looking effect, almost as bad as the composite work of the rod puppet on top of this. We were on the verge of stuff. They weren't spending money on this movie. Now, who knows how much they spent before they even got it out? The even got to this point. I mean, the budget on it's fifty million. I'm willing to say at least half of that happened before they ever shot a shot an inch of film. So yeah, um, this just is, on all the well, a lot of this stuff was done on cheap and. I, I like the close-ups of the Rod Puppet. I think it looks pretty cool when they're close-ups of it. But when they show it running down the hallway, my God, does that look bad. I mean, it's 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 so blatantly bad. It's like they almost, even when it's standing up, I mean, H.R. Geiger, he called it the Bambi zombie. I mean, it does kind of have that where its legs are a little bit wobbly and everything. And I'm kind of like, you look at like al- the first alien chestburster we saw in the first movie, you know, that thing just, you know, it took off, it, you know, adapted right away. This one almost kind of comes off a little pathetic in the beginning. You know, it's can barely stand and stuff. It's kind of like, eh. you know, it doesn't seem like the ultimate survivor of what we know of the alien. Yeah. And the next piece goes to the mess hall. And it's but, you know, in the theatrical, Ripley just walks up to Dylan and he's the whole I'm a raper and murderous women. You don't uh, raper and murderous. God, I'm a rapist and murderer of women. You don't want to know me, lady. You know, and there's no setup to that. In this one, there's a lot more of him talking to his guys. And he mm-hmm. can tell they're screwed up by the fact that she's there, you know, and they don't know how to handle that. And they can't stand this Gallic guy because he smells bad and he's just crazy and they can't they can't take him. And he is arguing, going, nope, you're going to tolerate him and all that. And I liked that because it set up the dynamic with the prisoners. You you understand why these guys look to Dylan now and how much I guess we're like bad saying it like pastoral control he has with them he's almost kind of coming off like a foreman you know yeah you got the the foreman has bosses but the foreman's a guy who relates to the workers and you know because he was a worker or whatever what have you but he's you know telling these guys you know you got to work with this guy you know you 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 might not like the guy you might hate the guy but it ain't up to you you're working with this guy so man up and deal with it and then they're showing you know closes up a gullick and you can just tell the guy's a messed up dude. You know, he's got he's a he's a about five cans short of a six pack. I mean, he's he's not all there, but yeah, he's definitely it's, wacky. That's for sure. So. And that, that's when you look at the theatrical version. You know, they almost cut Gullick out completely. His his arc, if you will, and I, I like I like it. I I love actually you know getting to know these characters a little bit more because they go from just being bald headed British guys to. All right, I'm starting to make them out a little bit. Yeah, that guy's a little bit crazy. Then you got these other two guys who look like they're kind of like a Parker and a, you know, Parker and Brett type relationship, and it's it's almost kind of bringing back stuff a little bit. Exactly, you get you get more of them. There's some reason for them. That's the thing that's missing in the theatrical cut. There's you just have to accept that they are, like Ripley describes them, prisoners who find God at the end of space. You know that's all you know about them in the theatrical and this you get to see all of that and you get to see their work habits and i think you described it really well the warden and mr aaron kind of run things even though everybody hates aaron and that they still play that joke with his iq and all that which is funny but charles dutton is the foreman he's sort of the leader of the prisoners and as long as they the warden knows if i gotta get anything done i gotta go through dylan and that he'll get them in line. And that makes a lot more sense later, even when they do that horrible rape scene thing, when he comes in and starts busting their chops, you get that that's why he would have to do that. That every now and then he's got, I got to re-educate some of the brothers. You know, like that comes off really kind of lame in the theatrical of this. It makes a lot more sense. It's coming off like he's the one that's, you know, he's going to take the fall for these guys if they screw up. You know, he's the one that's cast to report to Andrews. He's got to be the one that's reporting them. He's in charge of them and he's going to take the fall and, 
you know, you just see it that he's, you know, he's the foreman of the guys. You know, he's going to be there to help him out, and he's going to be there to tear him down when it needs to be. And I I personally, I really am enjoying all everything that's been added so far. I mean, besides the oxen thing, which was kind of stupid, I wish they would have kept the dog part in, but all these little character interactions are really working for me. I, You know, it's it's already the first half hour into the movie. I'm already sensing this movie's a lot better. Oh, it's it's so much better setup. Now, the thing is, I've already had to still accept things that I don't like. You know, the fact that Newton Hicks are dead and that Ripley's in this situation again and I'm having the whole John McClane, how many times can the same stuff happen to the same guy? You know, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit of that. But if I'm it's such a different environment and it again, I'm, it's given me people to play with here that are unique. I mean, I could see how if they didn't have Sigourney Weaver on board here and somehow the alien got on this prison planet, I would. I could almost like that movie. I don't know that it would be as good because I think Sigourney Weaver's performance does a lot with all of this, but I, I would almost, I think that movie would work in, in a lot of ways if they gave me enough background on these guys and, uh, you know, maybe somebody else from the previous film or something involved in it. I don't know that this is a side thought, but I'm, I'm going with it a lot more too. I found myself, realizing this was longer and I could feel it getting longer, but I wasn't minding it as much as I thought I would. Like I really went into this going two hours and 24 minutes of this. I don't know. <laughs> and I, I, because the other one, like it moves fast enough that I'm like, well, okay. You know, I liked it more than you did because you disavowed its existence, but, but I, Hyper I would, sleep dream. Yeah. I would go with it, but uh, I can go with alien three, the theatrical, but this one is, is definitely a longer haul, but I'm liking it so far too. Part of that may have been that it was new to me, but I also think it was genuine. I, I really like what I was seeing. I, what I don't like is that I think they still go with this whole Clemens and Ripley relationship, and I still feel like too much of this is perfunctory and doesn't work. Yeah, I could I could see that, but I don't know. I I kind of like seeing you know because this is before Ripley even knows about the alien, and it's almost kind of nice to see her. You know, her element to us is being you know being attacked by an alien, being you know always under threat, always being fearing of this stuff. You know, yeah, she just lost Newton Hicks, but she's almost, she's a different type of Ripley right now. And it's almost kind of nice to see her be different for once, you know, even if it's only going to be for 15 minutes, it's just, you know, I don't know. I just think it's got a little bit nice, you know, it's something for her to do. That is, it's something we haven't seen her do, but I still just have a hard time. And I think part of it is I like Charles dance and I like his character and I like Ripley and I like what Sigourney Weaver does with her, but I don't feel the connection with them together other than besides the two wardens. That's the only other sane one she could possibly be with. And he's got his own dark fast. I get, I don't know. I, I think that's a personal quip for me. I just didn't buy the love story angle. If that's what they're trying. I don't even know if it's a love story, just the human touch story of it. I still don't go with it, but they give us more of it. So it makes it, it works better in the um, assembly cut, but it's still not something I really I'd latch on to very much. Well, I like it though that we get Kim asking Clemens asking her more about why why do we have to, you got to tell me why do why do we cremate those bodies? Because right. he put himself on the line with that because you know he's not really even a prisoner himself. I mean he is a prisoner, but he's the doctor there. I mean he's higher up. He's kind of one of the top top three guys there. I mean a- Andrews and Aaron are the only ones that are above him, but you know he kind of put his ass on the line for her by doing this because that's not what the company wanted. They wanted them on ice. You know the company wants the bodies. Right. And he goes out of his way to do it. And it's, it's, I think it's a good, 
uh, plot element to see that he's sitting there just kind of asking her, and he goes, you know, why did we do that? You owe me an explanation of this. And she just kind of like still kind of blows him off, but she tells him that she had a bad hypersleep dream. And that was the reason why I just, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a weak explanation on her part, but I just kind of like it that it's just not dropped that it's a little, there's a little bit more to it. Yeah. Yeah. The scene with Clemens and Andrews is a little bit longer too. There feels like there's a couple of extra beats in there. And I did like that because the animosity between those two felt a little rushed in the theatrical. And this one, you get a little bit more of why you, you clearly Clemens is somebody with a past, but there's also other reasons he's willing to, I think he actually has respect for Dylan and these other prisoners and things like that. And the fact that they've decided to accept God and all that. And I don't think Andrews, he's just like, whatever keeps them happy. I don't care. He's just doing a job. And I felt like Clemens actually respected them for what they had decided to do with themselves, even though they are just prisoners. Mm-hmm. Well, he's one of them, too. I mean, he's, yeah, he's a prisoner, too. And, you know, he's obviously going to relate more to them, the guy who's the company guy doing his job there and stuff. And I think he wants them to show a little bit more respect to the prisoners and, you know, being like, yeah, these guys are murdering rapists, but, you know, that's kind of behind them. You know, that's – yeah. They, they they found God, I have you. They're, but then again, it's people. not because we forced that stupid rape scene back into this thing. So that's yep. he's wrong in that case. <laughs> but uh, I don't know that 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 to me though, those are a couple of things that are a little bit more minor. But it's really uh, in the middle that things start to get heavy again. They after the alien kills. Boggs and Gollett looks up at the alien and we see that whole, you know, I, I called it out when it sneered at him and I still hate that or whatever. It's, it looks different. Gollett envisions the creature as something different. He, he starts to attach to it as like, like you've said, he thinks it's, um, he thinks it's like the coming of the beast. And so he, because of what he believes now and everything, he's ready for the second coming. Yep. Oh, actually, um, we've kind of forgot to touch on this other scene. When, you know, you're talking about Clemens and um, Andrews talking. Um, I thought it was actually kind of neat with um, their back and forth because they're discussing Ripley and what exactly happened and how Andrews is questioning Clemens going, you know, you're spending every moment you have with her. And he goes, I'm assuming it's not medical, you know. And uh, they get into what happened on LV-426 and – you know, she's, he's telling her, like, yeah, she told me that she was with a military group and, group and they came off of grief. And, you know, Andrews is trying to get more information on him, but Clemens ain't telling him everything. And so it kind of shows that he respects them, but yet he really doesn't respect them in a way. And that he knows that Andrews is basically going back and forth with the company. And he's not exactly completely 100% trustworthy with the whole situation. I also have read that, that Clemens doesn't really know all of it yet. I think he knows the bits and pieces that Ripley's fed him. Yeah, and, he know he knows more than what he's telling. Andrew. Yeah, he knows more like, than what he's telling them, but he still doesn't know the whole thing. But you're right, he's definitely holding stuff back from them. And then, then when the scene happened with the alien, you know, killing everybody else, they kind of added a little bit more into him about why they're going around those tunnels. You know, yeah. we kind of questioned like, why are they going around just setting candles and just walking around in the dark places for no reason? And it turns out they're looking for stuff. They're looking for supplies, looking for any little thing they can use. They're looking for cigarettes too. I mean, they show Gallic <laughs> yeah. finding a cigarette machine. They have cigarette machines on the wall. I mean, <laughs> in a it's some type of alternate future because you're lucky if you can even find a pack of cigarettes these days. But. <laughs> I know, and I know. Well, you know, it, apparently big tobacco won in the alternate future 
but uh, but no, Whalen Yutani was Marlboro. Maybe they were. Who knows? But no, and I like Lancer. I like the add-on though that because I talked about last time how I hated the fact that the alien like sneers at Dalek or whatever. But his whole descent into crazy is much more fleshed out here. Like he sees the thing as the second coming of the beast in Revelation. It's the end times, and they find him in the mess hall eating with blood still all over his face. And I'm like, yep. wow, now I really buy this guy. Even if the whole ranting and raving didn't get it for me, that really got it for me. I, I like that that extra footage and dialogue made a lot more sense. Yep, and what is they, what, as soon as they find him, what do they do? They go get Dylan right away. Exactly. Dylan's, Dylan they show right there that he's the head honcho. They get Dylan, and then they get uh, Aaron. Aaron's with him as well. But it just shows right there that something goes wrong, you got to go get Dylan. He's the one in charge. It's just, it's just adding that little tidbits on to Dylan. Exactly. And then they're the ones that restrain him and get him in the in the hospital bed that's across from Ripley while she's working on Bishop and getting all the flight recorder info. And he starts raining and raving more. But that makes a lot more sense. Dylan just didn't run into the sick bay and go, what's wrong with my guy? You know, he had to restrain him and drag him in there. And that fleshes that out a lot better. It just makes more sense. The rest of it still plays the same. I mean, Clemens still gets killed. I think we get an extra shot of like his skull getting crushed in by the alien mouth. I don't remember that from the theatrical cut. It seemed a little grosser and, and longer, but he pretty much gets taken out again. And I'll mm-hmm. still say that I think that's a little early. I, I liked him and wish he could have hung around a little bit longer. But again, this movie is meant to shock me. And so it throws a wrench in the whole bit. I, it's it plays a little bit different because uh, Clemens and Ripley are actually talking to Gallic as he's in a straitjacket on the bed across from him, and Gallic's kind of going on, you know, hey, nobody's perfect. We're only human. There's no such thing as a perfect human. In an insane world, a sane man will appear insane. He's just kind of giving all these like weird, you know, philosophy lessons to him, and that's when Clemens shuts the drape on him because in the theatrical cut, he just shuts the drape because he's going to give her an injection. It's like. Okay, you know, there's really no reason for him shutting the drape, but he did that to shut Gallic up. Yeah. And then the next scene, though, you see is right after he does that is I added scene of the bed underneath the bed, how the bed you can see the alien as it comes down is yeah. on the bed to Gallic. And you can it's it's a really it's a really eerie scene because you actually see the bed, the springs just kind of go down and you realize, oh, crap, it's in there. And it's it's so silent, except for those you hear the bed, you know, bed squeaking when it does it. It's just I think it's really cool. A little cool added one. A little cool added scene, and then you see Gallic, you know, kind of freaking out and stuff, and that's when it happens where he goes right into Clemens, bites his head off, and then right after he's killed, they do a close up of Gallic, and he goes magnificent. Yeah, like he he's enamored with the thing. Yeah, he's just he's doesn't know what this thing is, but you know he's starting to put together that you know what this is this is my calling. You know this thing is you know it it didn't kill me. It didn't kill me here. You know, there's some he's having some type of bond with it because, you know, it's two times he's ran into it now and it didn't do anything to him. And see, that's the thing that that's I guess would would have been I could see again, I'm going to put on my Fox Studio exec hat. Well, why doesn't it kill him? Like, why would the alien care about the crazy guy? I think I think because it was going after Ripley at this point. I mean, not Ripley. It was going after. Well, I don't I, I was going to say it was going after Clemens for going after being right. Ripley, you know, kind of putting something in his arm. Maybe it's protecting her because of the queen. But then why would it go after Ripley right after that and, you know, put out its mouth and look at her? So it almost seems like that was the point where it discovered that Ripley was pregnant. So yeah, maybe I don't know it sensed it when it got next to her or whatever. I mean, that's a good question because we don't know. I mean, we you only in retrospect can you put that together as part yeah. of the story. So that's when you have to start wondering why it didn't go after her. I guess if it leaves both of them, it 
But again, that in the theatrical cut, because we talked about how the alien felt like a slasher. Well, now it has an accomplice. Well, it's clearly Golic's problem because he's the one killing everybody. You know, that's yep. what it looks like the alien is trying to do after that. And we we go ahead. The next bit is the more rumor control, and this is where Andrews gets killed, and then Ripley runs in on all that. But it starts off with, and I I love this. Dylan leads another prayer, and then he starts yelling him out about all the BS that's going on. And they just start going at each other. And he's he's had enough. You know, it's uh, no, we're not going to do this. We're going to go out like this. You know, and he's really trying to get him in line. And that's when Andrew steps up and starts his whole, this is what we know happened. This is not true. And then, of course, he gets taken into the roof. Yeah. I, again, it almost goes back to the whole foreman analogy where he's having a group meeting with his workers. And, you know, the boss is overlooking what he's saying. But it's, you know, what? What are you guys doing? Enough of this stuff. You know, start behaving the way you guys have been behaving just because, you know, this woman came down. This is a test from God and you guys are failing. You know, get your head out of your asses. You know, it's time to time to man up and, you know, be the men that you guys promised you guys were going to be. And, you know, quit falling into these urges and letting, you know, the devil take over. That was kind of that's right. kind of what I got from Dylan. That's what he was telling him. He's just like exactly. That, and that's exactly what he's telling. I think you're reading that exactly right. And that would be that's the right character motivation for him. That makes a lot more sense. It actually makes it more earnest that you believe these guys really believe what they say they believe. And Dylan in particular has taken it on in a very special way to be their spiritual leader in in a lot of ways, right? And I, mm-hmm. I mean, I I like that. It, it plays so much better in this version. And again, there's motivation for these characters. They're not just these nameless bald guys running around waiting to get killed by the alien. Yep, definitely. It's it's adding all these little extra character beats that was missing in the theatrical cut. Yeah, and it, you know, there's there's a few more added pieces here and there, Nick. But for the most part, everything is that's added back in is added in the middle. I think the chase scenes at the end are a little longer, or at least they felt a little longer, but they make a lot more sense too because they explain a lot more about how they're going to trap the alien, and that's the big thing, right? They actually trap the alien in the iron vat. What we get was, you know, we get this whole scene of them planning it where they're mopping the floors with the toxic waste that they're going to ignite, but you also get a couple little extra um, moments where, you know, Dylan's right next to Ripley because Dylan's kind of keeping an eye on Ripley right now because of what happened and because of the alien being there you know he's kind of seeing that she's kind of the alpha female and he's kind of you know taking interest in her a little bit more but he's sensing in her that something's up with her because he even mentions he goes you don't look all right and you can kind of start sensing that you know okay something's going on here something's going on with ripley and then it plays out basically exactly the same except for when the after the explosion happens one of the guys uh basically sacrifices himself where he says you know come get me and the alien chases after him and they go into this big room with these six foot thick, you know, steel doors, and then Dylan shuts it in there. And then you, you hear, of course, the guy getting ripped apart. But again, that's that whole true devotion bit, the self-sacrifice. That's the that actually is the setup for what Ripley decides to do at the end. And I'd like that so much better. Because now you've contained the thing, and what that does for the audience is now you know, wait a minute, there's no way they can keep it contained, so how is it going to get out? That adds a, a layer of mystery. So it's not just running around in the dark waiting for it to kill you. And also it, it adds more to the climax now because we've seen you – know, it's not just also when these guys uh, decide to sacrifice themselves in the end. You've seen that, you know what? They've kind of been on board the whole time that this thing needs to go. Right. You know, it's killing it's killing their brothers and they're willing to sacrifice themselves to save more of their brothers. Where at the theatrical cut, it's kind of like, yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to trap it in there. All everybody dies. All we're depressed. Okay, now we're just going to decide to kill ourselves to kill this thing. Where in the beginning of this, you know, 
from this scene on that you see that, you know what, these guys are going to, you know, do what they need to do to kill it. Those two speeches that Ripley and Dylan give them at the end when they're doing the arm up, if you will, you know, there's only a few of them left and they decide, yeah, yeah, we're going down swinging makes a lot, lot more sense in the assembly cut that it does in the theatrical. You're right. In the theatrical, you just have to go with it and accept it as like a raw, raw speech. In this, they're all going, yeah, we know, we know what's up. We got it. And they're much more on board with it. It's not as, it's not a hard sell. It doesn't come off like a hard sell as more of a reminder of well, this is what we've been saying we believed in all along, so now it's time to put it to the test. We've seen our brothers put it to the test. We're going to put it to the test. And I like it. It plays a lot better. And I like the fact that it's Golic who, in worshiping, you know, he disappears in the theatrical cut. What the heck ever happens to him, we don't know. In this cut, he lets the thing out. But even before that, though, we get uh, kind of like in the beginning scene, that me, the uh, opening credits that me and you both love with the kind of cutting back and forth, and then even with the dog and cremation cutting back and forth. We get another cutting back forth scene that was cut out and that's Dylan leading everybody in a prayer and then kind of intercutting it with them finding the bodies. Yeah. And I think it's a great scene too. And they shows, you know, Dylan's telling everybody they've moved up, they've gone to where they need to go and stuff and kind of reinforcing that they sacrifice themselves for the greater good and they're going to be rewarded for it. in you know, the next life, Right, exactly, and it all plays so much better. We get a little bit of more explanation on Aaron's character right after the uh, alien is trapped is where him and Ripley are kind of talking back and forth where she's asking, you know, Aaron, she's like, are you you the religious type? Because they're kind of, Ripley's almost kind of mocking the religion in a way, kind of going, yeah, they're kind of crazy. And she asks him, she's like, are you religious type? And he's like, no. He's like, I got a job. You know, I can't be religious and stuff. And, uh, He's going on and more about, you know, the rescue team's going to be here in five days, and they're going to open up that door and go in there with smart guns and kill it, and Ripley starts flipping out on him, going, you know, that's not going to happen, that's not going to happen. Because I think at this point, they're still trying to figure out how to kill the alien. It's trapped, but they're trying to figure out how right. to kill it. But they don't get to that point because, obviously, Gullick f- frees himself, he gets out, and then there's a guy keeping guard over the alien, and he ends up going there and cutting the guy's throat. And it's actually pretty gruesome what they, yeah. show. they show him. They just cut the guy's throat. And he walks in, you know, with his arms up like, you know, I'm your savior. You're my savior. You know, let's meet and stuff. And the alien rips him apart. You know, he, he gets he gets his just dessert. He gets his reward. Yeah, exactly. So, and then the rest of it plays out like the rest of the film plays out with one notable exception. Bishop, when he shows up at, with the company at the end there, he is definitely human this time, right? Because when he gets hit in the head, he yells that whole line about how I'm not a droid at Ripley. And I liked that, don't, don't you? I mean, I thought that was – that made a lot more sense now, like he, that he was a, a real person and not just another facsimile. I like it, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, droid or human, I mean, he still works the same way. I mean, if it's a droid, okay, they're trying to play with their – if it's a human, boy, they got to him quick, you know? Yeah. The company sure picked them up quick, you know? They're saying, <laughs> you know, we, we don't know how far away uh, Fury 161 is from LV-426, but – I agree. There's still, they're still the plot hole of we don't know where the heck this is and how yeah. long they've been going. They never can fix that, but – it uh, it plays better because you realize that he is indeed betraying her, but he is a human too. So he wasn't completely lying to her. And you get the feeling that, and I think Aaron has, has said it before, and they talk about the fact that, yes, there is surgery that can actually take this thing out of you. you know, like, And you believe that more that it's not just a story this time. Mm-hmm. But the end works different. How do you like it? Ripley, you know, again, sacrifices herself, falls into the lid, but no chest burster this time. 
I like it better, actually. I always thought that the chest burster in the end felt a little bit forced, kind of like it just so happened to come out at that time. I know you could spin it and say it obviously was sensing that it was going to die and try to get out before it happened, but it always just seemed a little bit like, oh, it just happened in those five seconds that she, you know, from when she fell to when she hit the fire. You know? Here's the funny thing to me. There's a line that gets dropped in this version that I don't remember from the theatrical where she says, we got to hurry up. I ain't got a lot of time. Like she can feel it moving or something, she says. And I'm like... You know what? I I actually wanted it to come out again because with it not coming out, you're left with this nugget of, well, did she really kill it? Did it really die? You know, the, the other way, the theatrical way, which I admit the shot looks bad. There's no way to fix that unless they spend some real money fixing that effect, and they're not going to do that. But if they if they could fix that, I like it better because it's definitive that she somehow finds the strength to grab the thing and take it down into the lid with her. Yeah, I mean, either way. I mean, I'm fine with either way. I just, in the end, I kind of just like it that she fell in and the thing didn't burst out. You get it now, too, that not only have these guys made the sacrifice that they all have claimed to be a part of with their religion, but even though she makes fun of it, Ripley accepts it, too, that that is the ultimate lesson, that at the end of everything, all you have is your willingness to give up your own needs and wants and survival for the better of everyone else. And that's the decision she comes to. And I think on this road, it makes a lot more sense. Nick, I think we're at the point of the podcast where we give our final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So what are yours for Alien 3, The Assembly Cut? I gave Alien 3, the theatrical version, a small popcorn. For The Assembly Cut, I'm going to give it a medium popcorn. Yeah, just the whole movie up to this point, just it adds up a lot more. And it just, the whole, the whole theme, I guess, just... It's a lot more enriching when you watch the watch the assembly cut. And yeah. what I have to recommend too is, you know, if you haven't seen Alien Three, don't just watch the assembly cut first. I think the assembly cut is better viewed after you watch the theatrical cut. Agreed. Because I think the initial shock of everything that happens in the first 15 minutes is gonna it really just kind of wears on you a little bit in the theatrical version where. You just have to. You just get through the movie. I mean, there's. It's one of those movies where you really have to work on getting through it. The theatrical. I mean, it's. It's nice that it's kind of paced fast, but if you had to work on getting through the assembly cut, and it's like there's so much more character moments, and it's just a longer movie, it's going to be a lot more heavy of a task. So I think it's always better just to watch the theatrical one first. Let that one kind of you know soak up inside you for a little bit. Accept what happens, and then go back and watch the assembly cut because I think you're going to appreciate it a lot more. Well, here's the thing. I gave the last one a medium because I said even with all of its flaws, there's still performances there that carry it. I particularly think Charles S. Dutton and Sigourney Weaver make that film watchable and rewatchable in a lot of ways for all its flaws. But this one is so much better. And I agree with what you said, Nick. I think you need to see the theatrical and then if you haven't seen it, then you watch the assembly. But for me personally, I didn't own a copy of the assembly cut before watching it for this podcast. But I do now because I... I don't know that I'll watch the theatrical again. This one is so much more fulfilling an experience. And as an Alien fan, I really dig this one. And I'm glad I finally got around to seeing it and you know had a reason to watch it. I'm going to give it a large. I, I For all the problems I have with the story, and there's still a couple holes in it, i, I got to take my hats off to Fincher for even being able to put this together off of what he had. This is a pretty coherent story, and I like it. I like the whole spiritual theme and undertones. It rings very true, and it makes a lot of sense. I I dig it. So I'm going to give it a large popcorn for Alien 3, The Assembly Cut. 
And actually, I got, I got to point out too that actually it wasn't Fincher that put this together. It was actually Fox that put this together. That's right. The editors came back and did it because Fincher completely disowns this movie. He will. He doesn't even want to talk about it. You bring it up, he'll probably punch you in the face. I mean, he has, does, does he even talk about it on the Blu-rays? He doesn't on the quadrilogy. I know. Another difference between the uh, Blu-ray and then the quadrilogy is there is some more added behind-the-scenes stuff and. Fox gets brutally honest with stuff, and I'm I was so surprised to hear what they said in the um, Blu-ray behind the scenes, and they basically they they, they admit you know we screwed up, we screwed up, we drove him off this project, and it, it's it's a mess. But Fincher did the best he could with Fincher has done a lot of stuff with Fox after the fact, believe it or not. I mean I believe uh, Fight Club was done through Fox, and uh, maybe a few other of his movies. So obviously they have a working relationship again, but. It just kind of sh- they, they basically Fox admits that you know they're the reason why Fincher walked out and they're the reason why Fincher will never even talk about this movie. He won't. I mean, good luck trying to find an interview with him about it because according to him, this movie doesn't exist. Yeah, I mean, he he does divorce himself from it, and that's fine. Whatever. I I'll say this: it makes me understand a little bit more of his next few pieces, particularly the next film he does, which is Seven. Understanding what he was going for here. And maybe someday we'll get around to doing seven. That might be a, a good a good chance. But before we do that, Nick, we got some more Alien coming, man. We got Alien Resurrection. Now, at the time of recording and release of this podcast, the guy who wrote Alien Resurrection is responsible for a couple of big summer hits. Kevin in the Woods and this little thing called Avengers you might have heard of. And so we're talking about Joss Whedon, of course, who didn't direct but did write Alien Resurrection. And we get Ripley back somehow. We get a little Winona Ryder. I mean, it's going to be a different ride when we come back next time for the fourth Alien installment. <laughs> it's going to be an interesting one, just to say the least. It has been a long time since I've watched Alien Resurrection, so I'm, I'm curious to revisit it and talk about it with you. Folks, again, we thank you for downloading this. Appreciate your support of our podcast here. You can find more episodes on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com slash movies. You can leave us a message on our guest book there. Uh, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and uh, you know, check us out. Let us know what you think of uh, what we've said here. And you can find more uh, episodes in our archive section. Also, find links to our sister podcast the art of slaying where we review every episode of the buffy the vampire slayer series so until next time for nick i'm jay thanks for tuning in to filmstrip thanks for listening to filmstrip and our reviews of the alien movie franchise visit our website continuousplaypodcast.com for more reviews and episodes say we take off Loot the site from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. All content used or discussed in this podcast are the property of their respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act Section 504C2, Title 17. This is Ripley, last survivor of the Nostromo, signing off.